This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we are joined by Dr. Don Deep, the CEO of Central Ohio Primary Care, which is a role that he took on earlier this year. And as the chief executive of the largest physician-owned primary care group in the United States, Dr. Deep oversees a practice of over 480 physicians and 83 locations in Central Ohio. And you know, Dr. Deep joined COPC in 1997 after he finished his internal medicine residency. He started the hospitalist practice uh, after joining COPC. He's cared for patients at many hospitals around Columbus for the last 20 plus years. And, you know, he grew that hospitalist practice to over 90 physicians, 15 APPs, 30 plus nurses. You know, he's created innovative programs like the Inpatient Support Center, the ED Care Coordination, Accountable Care Units. As the medical director prior to his role as CEO, you know, he was instrumental in setting up a comprehensive home and palliative care program, which we talk about in the interview today, their post-acute program, extensive care center, the transition of care nursing program. There's so much that Dr. Deep has done and his progression as a practicing physician, a medical director, and now the CEO of the practice. This is definitely a practice that we're excited to showcase. We previously had Dr. Bill Wolf, a former CEO on, on the on the show. We're excited to have Dr. Deep on this week. This is a practice that you really need to stay up on because they're leading the way in modernized primary care in the country. And before we start our interview today, I wanted to let you know about our sponsor this week, Agilon Health. Agilon Health is transforming healthcare delivery through a technology-enabled, full-risk, value-based care model that places the primary care physician as the quarterback of patient care. And they're doing this at scale and geographies that have operated in the fee-for-service environment. And if you want to know more about how to transform primary care at scale, definitely look into Agilon Health. And they also uh, work with Central Ohio Primary Care. So you'll learn a lot about the Agilon relationship by uh, listening to this week's episode. So now, uh, without further delay, let's go ahead and hear from Dr. Don Deep as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Dr. Deep, welcome to the Race to Value. It's so great to have you on the show this week. It's very exciting to be here. Thanks, Eric. Well, I know you were recently named as the CEO of Central Ohio Primary Care earlier this year, and you replaced 
Bill Wolf, who was previously on our podcast. And I would recommend to all our listeners, definitely check out that episode with Bill we recorded uh, last year. It's such an amazing story with Central Ohio Primary Care. And, you know, Dr. Deep, I must say it's a such a privilege to learn about COPC over these last few years. I mean, as both the largest independent primary medical group in the country and one of the largest companies in Central Ohio, directing about 2,200 employees across 90 locations in six counties. I mean, this is a really impressive practice in terms of scale and community reach. But what impresses me most about the practice is the population health sophistication by which has been demonstrated over the last few years in the value journey with the group. I mean, although the practice was founded in the late 90s, I understand the value journey really started with the conscious effort to pursue transformation as an NCQA-recognized patient-centered medical home in 2010. And since that time, there's been a high level of success realized as a modernized and advanced primary care practice, making it one of the leading exemplars of primary care in the country. And I thought we could begin our conversation today by talking about the modernization of primary care so our listeners can glean insights from your transformation. I mean, as we head into this new future in value-based care, we do need a better system of care and a model where people come first and best care and competitive pricing aren't mutually exclusive. And COPC has this committed vision to lead the nation with a new care delivery process that offers high quality patient care with greater efficiency and fewer unnecessary costs. So in your experience as a healthcare executive and someone that joined COPC as a physician in 1997, how have you witnessed the modernization of primary care that positively impacts patient outcomes? Could, could you share some of examples with our listeners that highlight some of the successes that have happened and some of the transformation effects of the changes that have happened over the last few years? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's great to, it's great to be on the podcast, Eric. I, I very much appreciate the invitation. And yeah, when Dr. Wolf did his podcast, I, th I think he did a great job and he obviously has laid the groundwork for a lot of what we've done here. We have one of our tenants in COPC to modernize primary care. Let me give you a couple examples specifically when we talk about, you know, value-based care, which you know you hear a lot about. I think we've certainly tried to coordinate a patient's journey through the healthcare system as it relates to COPC in the last several years, and, and not just in their office with their physician, but after hours, making sure that we have uh, provided resources inside of their electronic health record inside of COPC, where they can easily access care um, around the clock if they happen to get or need um, urgent care We've provided that inside of COPC. We have also, and if they happen to get to the hospital around the city, we have teams of nurses and hospitalists, physicians that see them in the ER when they get there. If they get in the hospital, take care of them, you know, and then obviously get them back to their primary care physician in the timely manner that they need, depending on their relative risk, uh, and then follow up with them even in their home if needed. So, I mean, the the idea of sort of embracing the that we're responsible for the care of our population of patients, even outside the exam room is one. And we've been able to um, use resources that we've garnered from our, from our success in population health to continue to build these care models. The other way that I would say we're, we're modernizing primary care is almost like going backwards in time, if you will. We talk to our docs about the idea that we're trying to make sure they have the right amount of time to spend with patients. And it's not necessarily that they work less, it's just that maybe they work differently and they're able to spend 
more time with patients to be able to engage them, engage patients and families in their care, and continue to work on things that, as far as health prevention, not just taking care of them only when they're sick, but how to keep them healthy, how to, how to deal with things and their social determinants of health, things that just take time and making sure that we can get to a reimbursement payment structure where, where our physicians and care team members are paid for spending time with patients instead of just doing things to patients. And I think we've had some success in, in physicians working differently and yet still being successful when running their practice. Well, such a big aspect of primary care transformation is how to address avoidable ED visits. And last year, the institute that I lead published a case study on COPC's extensive care center program that's had great results in emergency department utilization. And COPC has implemented two broad strategies that are aimed at reducing the rate of observation stays in the ED. And the first strategy was embedding a, a COPC nurse into the ED to perform care coordination for the patients. And the second strategy, as I understand, was meeting patients' needs before they arrived at the ED. And the extensive care center or the ECC was created to provide obser observation level care and low to moderate emergency care in an outpatient setting. And the ECC isn't a complete replacement for the ED, as I understand, but it's able to provide a lower level of care that was still beyond what could be accomplished in a typical office visit. And it's centrally located, so as many patients as possible can access it. It's co-located with the same day center that's in the practice that's very similar to an urgent care clinic that provides same day appointments uh, for patients. And the ECC has been a great success with patients, providers, payers, about 95% of your patients in the ECC return home after their visit with the other 5% that need to go to the ED. And case reviews have confirmed that at least 70% of the patients seen in the ECC would have been seen in the ED if that center had not been available. And with this program, you've been able to prevent, you know, two to three hospital admissions each week. And the patient satisfaction with this program has been exceptional. So Dr. Deep, I wanted to ask you if you could share with our listeners the work that the practice has done to deploy various ED diversion programs to reduce avoidable emergency visits? And how has the co-location of the extensive care centers with the same-day centers been an enabler for improved patient outcomes? Yeah. So the, yeah, the, thanks for that. The ECC, kind of the concept's been around for several years now. And I think we've seen, we've seen generally speaking, a wide-ranging success. We're, we're probably upwards of um, a thousand or more visits at each of our extensive care centers. And now I say each of, because we started with one that was centrally located and we realized that the model is successful and we've kind of expanded it out and co-located a second extensive care center with one of our same day centers on the Northwest side of Columbus. By having a nurse with capabilities to place IVs and give IV medications with a provider, either an APP um, or a physician that's comfortable with a little sicker patient than you might see in just your classic urgent care. We've been able to, you know, for 10 hours a day, be able to get patients in that otherwise, to be honest, yeah, would have, our expectation would have been that they go to the ER. And maybe our expectation would have been that they go to the ER and might have been discharged, but that's still a, a few thousand dollar ER visit. But we also know that when you hit the ER, your chance of, depending on your risk factors and your age and such, your, your chance of being put in observation or inpatient 
um, nowadays can can get upwards of 50% no matter what. And so by getting, by offering these services and, and getting patients with conditions such as, I mean, we've, we started off with even low level stuff a few years ago with cellulitis, mild heart failure, mild COPD exacerbation, but we've gotten up to um, treating some patients with mild DKA, right? With IV insulin and labs, the point of care labs and watching them for eight, 10 hours um, getting their getting their diabetes under control, getting them back home, um, and then following up even the next day. We have patients with heart failure exacerbations, with chronic heart failure that we know we'll see them, make sure that they have their oxygen, give them a couple doses of IV Lasix in the ECC, bring them back the next day, and do that for days on end um, to keep them out of the hospital. We've we've really had good success with co-locating next to the same day centers, which is just our classic urgent care. Because on the other hand, sometimes you get patients in the urgent care that are sicker than the urgent care would like. And in the past, they may have just hit the button to say, go to the ER. And we will just grab the ECC providers and have them come. We don't move the patient, we move the providers, keep the patient in the room, get them the care that they need. What we've seen are consistent outcomes. We're really, we don't want want no one to go to the ER because that means we're not really seeing the sick type of patients we should, but we're still under 10% that don't go home. Um, the vast, vast majority go home. Our average length of stay in the ECC is probably three to four hours. And, and most of those patients, you know, you said 70%, I think that's probably still correct. We know would absolutely seek care or be directed to a much higher level of care. And the value that we're creating there has been recognized by payers um, and in the patient experience, they love it. It's quiet, it's safe, it's calm. It's nothing like an emergency emergency department. Um, and so, yeah, we, you know, we opened a second one and, to be, and when we open our new medical building on the east side of Columbus in April or May of 24, we'll have a third one. And, you know, our staffing model, we always look at the staffing model as far as hospitalist, APP, RN, how do we combine that to make it efficient? But we'll have three, we'll have three as of summer of next year. Well, Dr. Deep, there's something else I wanted to ask you about. I mean, as I understand, you have an extensive background in implementing palliative care and, and value-based care. And, you know, as a former operator of an ACO and conferring with my colleagues, you know, I, I know a lot of the low-hanging fruit, obviously, is chronic care management and addressing ambulatory care-sensitive conditions, you know, uh, looking at primary care access, ED diversion, but palliative care is is a really a key enabler to addressing seriously complex ill patients. And you created, uh, as I understand, a comprehensive home and palliative care program in the practice. And that team provides primary and palliative care to patients in the home setting. And they they have this comprehensive approach where they work to provide relief from the symptoms and stresses of serious illness. And, you know, in the industry, you know, we've seen the research. I mean, the evidence shows that palliative care supports value-based care. It leads to better management of pain and symptoms, improves quality and length of life. The preferences of patients and their families and caregivers are better accounted for. The satisfaction is much higher. And, you know, by realizing a level of patient-centeredness that can only be attained through palliative care. Healthcare utilization is ultimately reduced and outcomes are, are improved. And nationally, we've seen ACOs that have successfully implemented palliative care, and they've demonstrated reductions in 30-day readmissions, avoidable hospital admissions, ED visits. And additionally, over the last 10 years, a number of studies have repeatedly demonstrated how advanced illness programs can consistently provide high patient and family satisfaction and reduce hospitalizations by nearly 50 percent 
and decrease costs in the last year of life by 20 or even 25 percent. So I wanted to ask you if you could provide our listeners with a, a deeper understanding of what palliative care entails, especially in the context of your primary care model. And, and how did the idea of this program come about in the practice and what motivated you to develop such a program? And ultimately, is the provision of palliative care in the home setting something that ACOs and other risk-bearing entities should be thinking about as part, as part of their playbook strategy? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, palliative care... So all palliative care is not hospice. Like it's one of those things, you know, that people could sometimes they get tripped up on and, and they use it to patients, say palliative care and patients might think they're in hospice, right? So hospice is you have less than six months that you're expected to live um, and provides comfort care. Palliative care, like you said, is kind of, you know, symptom management of a serious illness, um, increasing someone's comfort, quality of life, decreasing their stress, whether, whether that stress is emotional, physical, um, pain, um, and, and patients can still pursue treatment for and, and curative treatment and holistic treatment while they're on palliative care. So really, it's 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 what we would want. It's what you would want if you're suffering from a serious illness. You would want symptom management and palliative care. Um, and we, I think, as a as a full time hospitalist for twenty plus years, it was one of those things that I, I I got to understand that the inpatient side of things, when someone's in the hospital and they just had symptoms I couldn't successfully manage, I would consult palliative care inside the hospital. But then it, when when my career kind of took me to more in the medical director and now CEO, you realize that as a hospitalist, there were so many patients that I saw that kept coming back to the hospital that I actually got to know them well as a hospitalist. Um, because they had their symptoms were poorly managed, they would go home and they come back to the hospital. And the only place that could acutely manage their symptoms was a hospital. And that's not adding value. And that's not adding quality of life. Um, and that's also, a, that can be a tough thing for a primary care doctor who may not be trained in palliative care and the, com and the complexities that go along with relieving somebody's symptoms and increasing their comfort with some serious illnesses, with some medications or treatments that they may not be familiar with. So understanding that coming from my background as a hospitalist, that palliative care was invaluable, wanting to take that into some into patients' homes, because as, as much as you would want to centralize it in the clinic, it may become just impractical with those type of patients to ask them to drive and to come in. Um, you you need to go you need to go where they are, and we got fortunate enough to have a, a colleague that I knew that I'd work with who who and that was his passion, Dr. Mark Taylor in Columbus. That was his passion was home palliative care, and we brought him on board and 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 he embraced COPC's kind of deep pursuit of value based patient centered care and built a home palliative program. Um, and educated us along the way that physicians are key, nurse practitioners are key, nurses are key, medical assistants are key, that it's not a one-size-fits-all, that you need to get the right level of service out to those patients. And we've grown that program from starting with 30 patients to now running at a time, six, 700 patients at a time through it, and patients cycle on and off of our home palliative program. Our goals are clearly to keep the patients home, keep them out of the hospital. Um, as you said, if when done well, these high risk, high complex patients with serious illnesses should have less ER visits and less inpatient stays. 
they should have a much higher quality of life. They should be, if if things don't work out for them, they should be transitioned to hospice earlier and they should spend more time on hospice before they would possibly pass away. If things work out and they get better, they should be transitioned off of palliative and they can and and then they don't need seed. And we've seen that. I mean, we, we again we're we're very proud of our program. We have board certified palliative docs that go out in the community, but we also have a team of upwards of 15 people that 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 they support that get out. And again, I think we're 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 approaching about 700 people at a time that we rotate on. And I, I would encourage people to look into either, you know, developing your own may not be may not be practical for every organization, but there are um, I, I would find a partner in your community um, that you can work with. In Columbus, one of the reasons we did our own was there are really, really, really good hospice programs in Columbus. There wasn't a um, home palliative program that we felt really good about partnering with. And so we did go out and, and, and decided to build it ourselves. Well, Dr. Deeb, I appreciate you explaining the comprehensive home and palliative care program. I can tell it's a an area that you're really passionate about. And, you know, formerly you're a hospitalist and, you know, a medical director. And now you're the CEO of the practice. And, in, you know, uh, in your work, it seems like you really have to have now this this bigger view of uh, value-based care and, and where what levers you can use to really uh, get the gains in terms of having you know better patient outcomes uh, lower costs better patient experience and you know there's such an important aspect of value-based care which is eliminating low value care and I know that's another area that that you've focused a lot on in your career and you know in the US right now about 30 percent of healthcare spending is wasted on low value care and administrative complexity and other inefficiencies. And it's been estimated that low value care spending is about a hundred billion to seven hundred billion each year. And you know, the harms of of this low value care is innumerable. You have the overuse of medications, including over-the-counter drugs and supplements that has created this epidemic of serious side effects that are entirely preventable at a great financial cost. You know, we hit we see overscreening of cancers, which lead to many patients being treated for cancers that are false alarms and would have never had symptoms and often with powerful and potentially harmful you know chemotherapeutic drugs and radiation and most alarmingly unnecessary procedures happen way too frequently you know due to this supplier induced demand that we have in the fee for service world where providers overtreat because of you know maybe an economic incentive to do so and you know, a primary reason why we have so much waste in the healthcare system is that we fail to empower primary care doctors, you know, causing needless variability in care and unsustainable growth in healthcare costs. And as a clinician and healthcare executive, I wanted to ask you, you know, how do we approach primary care modernization with an appropriate lens to eliminate that low value care? I mean, how has the rapid adoption of PCP led global capitation reimbursement models like what you have at, at COPC, where, we, where the practice is at risk for the total cost of care, how has that enabled the practice to transform care delivery and the elimination of wasteful spending? Sure. Yeah, it's a really, no pun intended, right? It's a complex topic. So when we look at waste and you know, we look at providing high-value care, we want to eliminate waste. And when we eliminate waste, sometimes we we focus only on things that don't need done. So getting rid of things that don't need to be done, but we also want to make sure that we do things that we do things that add value and waste. We often define sometimes as not doing enough of those things. So we, 
we define them both. And we've been, we've tried to take some bold steps in the past year or two to continue to look inward at our own practices and where we can specifically as COPC eliminate waste and define clinical pathways that that add value and make sure we hold docs to them, but now also extend outside of our sphere. Quite honestly, use the leverage of a large primary care group to providers, physicians, cell systems that touch our patients outside of our offices. There's so much care that happens outside the primary care doc's office. And in the past, maybe some of that responsibility for that care um, was abdicated by primary care and we've stopped. We're, we've made a passion to stop that. We need to we need to advocate for our patients when they interact with health systems and physicians outside of us and making sure that we define, we define what is high value care. And we define to the physicians that want to see our patients what we what our expectations are of them. And we have gotten bold enough to ask for and demand risk adjusted outcomes of specialists that want to see our patients. We've gotten bold enough to put out formal requests for proposals to specialist groups in Columbus so they can come back and they can they can understand our expectations of what high value care is for our patients and um, understanding what our expectations are for physicians to meet those. And that's a big, big step. Uh, and certainly in Columbus had not been done before. Hadn't found too many examples where primary care groups were driving the care outside of their office and how they expected high value care to be delivered. On the topic of PCP-led global cap, right? And what what can you do or how is that how has that driven high value care? And to be quite honest, it we've embedded it now in part of our comp formula. Right. You mentioned that PCPs need to have some, they need to have a financial incentive to practice high value care and not just fee for service and not just do things to patients. Um, we've been financially successful uh, thus far in our journey to value. We have so much data now around activities at the individual physician level in our company as to what drives value and who drives value and what doc does. And the way to incentivize reward docs that spend the right time directing their patients to value and engaging their patients in value is we've been able to build it into their comp model. And it's not all of their comp, it's a part of it, but it certainly, it makes us feel good that we're rewarding the docs that are taking the time um, to provide high value care to their patients. Well, it seems like if we're going to eliminate a wasteful spending in the healthcare system, we ultimately have to reduce unnecessary variations in clinical practice. And you can look at employer-sponsored health plans as an example. I mean, there was a study last month that was con conducted in conjunction with Morgan Health that found that across the top 10% of providers, 73% of patients with coronary artery disease are taking the recommended statin medication per guidelines on average. By comparison, that drops to 39% on average for patients that are treated by the bottom 10% of providers. And in value-based care, it seems like we all too often focus on seniors, but there's significant work to be done with the commercial population as well. And you know, I mentioned Morgan Health with that study, and you know they're a business unit of J.P. Morgan Chase. And I just happened to see uh, Dr. Deep a picture of you online with 
Chase CEO Jamie Dimon. And I'd love to ask you about the partnership that COPC has with one of the largest employers in the country. As I understand, there is an innovative new collaboration with Morgan's investment asset, Vera Whole Health and Central Ohio Primary Care. And JP Morgan is offering Vera's services to its own employees as an optional benefit with the focus on the central Ohio market where COPC serves as the care delivery arm. And I'm really interested to learn more about your work in providing employers like JP Morgan Chase access to on-site health clinics, health coaching, behavioral health services, and after hours access to care. Could you provide an update? Sure. Yeah, happy to. Happy to. Yeah, we've been live with our partnership with Vera, which is now Vera Whole Health, which has now been, I think, rebranded to a pre. And but we've been live with our joint venture with Vera, with our with our first business that we work with in Columbus, which is JP Morgan Chase. They have greater than 35,000 employees and beneficiaries that we've set up a, a advanced primary care via direct to employer. So we have a number of uh, clinics, um, a couple inside of their locations in Columbus and a couple of clinics that are outside that are that we call near site that are outside their locations um, to take care of the JP Morgan Chase uh, employees and beneficiaries by providing not just urgent care and on-site, you know, work health, but a, but truly advanced primary care to their uh, employees and, and their families that otherwise didn't have a primary care doc. And, you know, Columbus was, I think this was a good market to start in, COPC. We already take care of a good portion of JP Morgan's patients, probably a, a third or a little less than a third. And a lot of their employees also didn't have a primary care doc. And we knew that by by going direct to the employer and making it convenient, but then also from a clinician lens, making it more than just urgent care. We were, we were able to um, provide longitudinal primary care. You're able to provide preventative care. If by chance they had to be directed to um, a specialist or another healthcare entity, we're able to have a high value network that we're able to direct them to. They're able to get consistent care, Vera brings a, um, a capability in the behavioral health space that quite honestly COPC doesn't have. And so they're able to provide um, expanded behavioral health services. Um, and really what, what we've seen is kind of what you, you were referencing a little bit, you know, on the population health side, a lot of the focus is on seniors, but then a lot of the focus to, with employers is just a lot of, there's a lot of employees that given maybe their their income range or their, or where they live or other factors that maybe you wouldn't classically think would have access to advanced primary care to really keep them or get them healthy or keep them engaged in their own health. And um, by going to direct to employers, especially large employers, I think you're able to really provide an access point for a lot of patients that maybe wouldn't have had that advanced primary care that you can then um, make sure that you're you're meeting quality benchmarks and you're doing you're you're able to um, impact their life in, in in a way that maybe you otherwise wouldn't. And so, you know, we're we're approaching getting into our second year. JP Morgan is very pleased with the with with the experience. The employees are very pleased with the experience. I will say we're we're working on getting our our first years of our first year of data to find out how how what outcomes look like. But it's been it's been super exciting so far. Well, it's a great example of care delivery innovation. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, I, I appreciate you sharing the insights about this partnership. And I look forward to kind of seeing how the results play out in the years to come. 
Although care delivery enhancements are most visible at the front lines of patient care, you know, we also have to ensure that payers and providers are aligned. I mean, it's a critical strategy to support sustainable and financially viable improvements. And over the years, COPC has demonstrated a high level of proficiency and success in leading payer negotiations. You've been able to forge strong relationships with payers that ultimately translate to improve patient outcomes for the populations you serve. And unlike in a fee-for-service model, you know, payer contract negotiations and value-based care don't always have to be a zero-sum game. You know, incentive misalignments and competing stakeholder priorities aren't insurmountable challenges when all stakeholders are at the table and are trying to lower total cost of care and improve patient health outcomes. And ultimately, value-based care will not succeed without providers building these successful partnerships with payers where all entities are equal partners at the table and make joint decisions, perform clinical integration activities, work together on programs to support and improve patient outcomes and quality performance. So, Dr. Deep, I wanted to ask you as a value-based care leader, you know, how have you been able to work with payers in a more collaborative manner where you can achieve these true win-win partnerships? And how have you been able to leverage these payer provider partnerships to improve the health outcomes and reduce the health disparities for the populations that you serve? Yeah. So a few things come to mind. One, we talked about the extensive care center a little bit ago, the, the ECC. And, you know, we have a, we have a, some payers that have recognized the value of that ECC visit and, you know, are able to say, look, we're, we'll reimburse you because we understand you have supplies that are outside of a typical office or an RN with skill sets outside of typical office. And we're not going to reimburse you ER rates because you're not in the ER, but we're going to partner with you on qualifying ECC visits to make sure you get reimbursed successfully to make sure that we can continue to grow the program, right? And so that that's sort of a win-win, right? They're, we win because we the reimbursements are higher to support what we're doing. The payer wins because we continue to build the ECC and the patients don't go to the ER. And so that that felt that that feels good when that negotiation happens. Second is we, you know, we keep shifting more and more dollars to prepayment upfront payments for our for our organization based on our, our patient volumes instead of uh, shared savings at the end. And I think, that, like you said, it's not even a zero sum game. It allows us to engage all of our care team members, physicians nurses, NPs, the staff, by understanding that these are the dollars that are coming in regularly, instead of waiting for metrics that you that may or may not be outside of your control on a year delay that you where you get shared savings, you know, just naturally human nature would say, well, geez, that that it might make me, it might make it tough for me to continue to um, be innovative versus just payers recognizing the value we deliver and saying, yeah, let's get you upfront payments keep innovating, keep driving. And it ended up not even being a zero-sum game. We still get shared savings, but we still get more upfront dollars. And so that, you know, the, again, another negotiation that kind of feels good. Um, as long as we keep performing, I think the payers come back and say, how can we how can we work with you to keep getting better? Maybe last is you know, we, we work with our payers a lot to make sure that we get their data and what they're seeing as our high-risk patients. And we compare it to our data for what we're seeing with our high-risk patients to make sure that there's make sure we're not missing anybody that either we need to make sure we're seeing regularly. There's a lot of data coming out now about the regular cadence 
of patients with high risk conditions and seeing their PCPs five, six times a year, which leads to much less ER visits and fewer hospitalizations. And so understanding that we're seeing the right patients, and then if we can't see them, making sure that we're able to get and find them where they are, right? So get to their home. And we've had decent success in working with payers. And again, that's a win-win, right? The payer makes sure that we understand who our patients are with high-risk conditions. They want them to be seen in our primary care offices so they're not seen in the hospital. And we kind of share that data. And again, it's not that ends up being a win-win, not contentious. Um, and so, yeah, the, those partnerships with payers, believe it or not, right, feel good. They feel good. Well, and speaking of these important partnerships, the one that COPC has had with Agilon Health has been one of the most talked about collaborations in the value ecosystem for quite a while because of the enablement it's provided for the practice to build an infrastructure to take on full risk Medicare Advantage. And COPC was Agilon's very first customer and owns a minority stake in the startup that's raised more than a billion dollars in its IPO a few years ago. And as a founding partner, COPC was in the driver's seat to help shape a total cost of care model that provides a high level of business intelligence to achieve improved population health outcomes. And this partnership with Agilon invigorated the practice. It accelerated the COPC's move away from fee-for-service to patient-centric reimbursement mechanisms, which prioritize optimizing the patient experience and health outcomes of older adults. And this partnership uh, became a catalyst to modernize the, the practice and led to excellent outcomes in your MA book of business. And, you know, when we had uh, Bill Wolf on the podcast previously, we talked about this Agilon partnership, and I'd love to get an update on what the collaboration looks like now. I mean, for example, I saw in the news earlier this year that the COPC Agilon partnership led to the development of a primary care advanced practice provider fellowship program. And you were quoted as saying this fellowship aligns with COPC's goals to modernize primary care by building complete care teams that include highly trained and compassionate advanced practice providers to care for our patients in Central Ohio. So I wanted to ask you, Dr. Deeb, if you could bring our listeners up to speed on this APP program and how it's going to support COPC's transition to risk-based payment. And, and with this case study for partnership success with Agilon over the years, what advice can you provide our listeners in the primary care setting who are seeking capital and finding an enablement partner that they can share risk with? Sure. So let's talk about the APP program or partnership first. So we have a we have a um, a partnership with Cope C O P E, right? Not C O P C, but C O P E Cope Health. They're a national uh, organization, and they partner to get us APPs that come into C O P C, and they're C O P C employees, C O P C uh, nurse practitioners or PAs, and we embed them and partner them with with a with an office and a provider or two providers. And what they are doing is they're kind of on a they're kind of in a value-based care fellowship, if you will. COPE provides the um, knowledge of how they of, of what their clinical day should be like. And then COPE also provides some some uh, infrastructure to get them didactic learnings during their year of their, I guess you would call it like value-based care APP fellowship. While while they're not in didactics for a day a week. They're in the office seeing patients, working with our physician to get real-time clinical experience. They're still, you know, they're still paid. They're, they're still salaried as a nurse practitioner. 
Um, they still get time off. They learn COPC's culture. They learn the office fit. But it's, you know, they also are focused on value-based care and what that would look like. And so we've had um, just in the first year, and I think it started earlier this year, we've had eight. I mean, we're up to eight APPs that that, that have been in, in our fellowship that we've successfully placed throughout the year. Um, as the year turns, we we've, we hope that they all stay in the office where they are and that they continue to learn and develop. And I think that Agilon has provided some financial support for that and some resources to connect with COPE um, as this originated. And I think that we understand that second part is why it's so valuable is going back to modernizing primary care, the, the physician, the old way of the physician doing everything, like everything can't sustain, right? right? Um, healthcare is complex. It's hard. Burnout, frustration is real. Electronic health records are real. The administrative burden is real. And so the physician can't do everything. And care teams and team-based care um, isn't just fancy buzzwords. It needs to be built to some of the reality. And um, highly trained, skilled, knowledgeable team members, whether it's a nurse, medical assistant, or an APP that's that's done, you know, a fellowship in value-based care is one of the ways that we're gonna make sure that this model that we're building is sustainable, not just for a year or two, but for five and 10, 15, 20 years into the future. And so embracing team-based care for what that is, even though it takes time and it's an investment is why we're partnering with COPE. As far as the other, as far as partnering, when you need, if you need capital or such, yeah, I mean, we, we couldn't do this. We could not have done this alone. Like we are the largest independent primary care group in the country and we could not have done what we're doing with value-based care alone. You need capital. You need someone to take on, to help you take on risk. Um, you may or may not need someone to help you with contracting. You may or may not need somebody to help you with other um, clinical programs of what to do and what not to do. Um, Agilon for us has been a fabulous partner because they are a partner. They don't own us. They don't act like they own us. Um, they're a partner. They enable us to get data. They enable us to get some analytics. They now with multi-state, a few dozen practices around the country, there is now a network that we can learn from, that we can engage with. They have data on a, on a, on a lot of patients, not just our own. They have learnings over the last decade plus of, of what to do and what not to do in value-based care. So if I were to give advice, it would be finding somebody with capital to back you who also probably just wants to really be a partner and not just own you. And I think that's why we've had success with Agilon. Well, we've, we've had a great discussion today, and we've talked a lot about primary care modernization and care delivery innovation. And this success that you've had at COPC in this national movement to value-based care, I mean, it wouldn't have been possible without leadership and collaboration. I mean, you mentioned, uh, you know, you couldn't have done it alone. And it reminds me of a quote from Mike Levitt's book, Finding Allies and Building Alliances, where he says, the ability to get things done with collaborative networks is the next evolution in human productivity. And those who develop these skills will prosper in the next quarter century. And those who don't will fall behind. So Dr. Deep, I wanted to ask you, as we wrap up our conversation today, can you provide your parting thoughts on the importance of collaboration and value transformation? How should leaders in this new era of healthcare delivery think differently about what it means to be a leader and how best to effectively forge creative partnerships that can improve population health, equity, and affordability in the primary care setting and beyond? 
Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I think we challenge ourselves and then others to say this, you know, the status quo is just not, it's not okay. It's not good enough. Some would say it's not sustainable. We know the financial resources we put into healthcare, and then we see the irrefutable data about where we fall short on the outcomes as a general population, right? So that responsibility of the leaders, no matter if you're in healthcare or you're in the private sector in the employment sector or you're in government, you, you can't turn away from that. So I think working together, because much like our organization couldn't have done value-based care alone for our patients, no one organization is going to be able to do this alone. The, again, whether that's the private sector or the government or just healthcare. And so I think you can get to some success in value-based care based upon patient populations, but when you really want to get down to health equity diffusely throughout the country, that's a challenge that I, that I think is going to take a lot, a lot of work from a lot of really smart people. Um, and it's going to take it's going to take people challenging the way things are done and sacrificing maybe some of their own organization's resources to make for the betterment of their community that they're in. I think ultimately there's a responsibility that we all have when you're engaging in healthcare to make sure that your that your organization is strong, but that the community that you're a part of is strong. Doing that with trusted partnerships will make a lasting impact. And that's hard, right? We're all we're all competitive. We all want to do well. Physician leaders, private sector leaders, they lead their teams. And I think at, at a time, uh, at a time certainly in, in 2023, 2024, we know that if we can come together and really make a difference as team-based care as leaders, much like we talk about team-based care in the office, I think bringing team-based care uh, on an organizational level, um, we could make a difference. Well, indeed, you are making a difference. I mean, your practice is leading the nation with a new care delivery process. You're modernizing primary care, you know, through your advanced primary care model. You've been a, an exemplar for others to look at in terms of how do we go about pursuing a journey in this race to value. Uh, Dr. Don Deep, I can't thank you enough for, for connecting with us and being on the podcast this week. Uh, I wish you uh, continued success in the practice and the great transformation that you're on. Oh, thank you very much, Eric. It was my pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you.